Okay, we're going to be in Mark 16, if you take your Bible, open it to Mark 16. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. We are looking at the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned to you last Sunday that these particular verses are somewhat controversial, and the reason that they are is twofold. One is they're not in some of the manuscripts, some of the early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and you might notice that they're in brackets in some of your versions, or there may be uh, some sort of note in your Bible about the origin of these verses. So we're going to tackle those. The second reason that they are controversial is there's some controversial uh, content in the verses. And some content like the taking up of serpents, for example. And uh, what does that exactly mean? And what is the proper interpretation of that? There are some churches, uh, especially churches that you see in different parts of the nation right now, that are actually snake-handling churches. And in fact, uh, within the last couple of years, ABC did a story of a pastor who was one of these snake handlers, and he had been bit by a rattlesnake some nine times. Uh, it was his uh, opinion, his strong opinion, that whenever he was bit by a snake, he was not to seek medical attention. The last time he was bit, he went home, and he refused medical attention, and he died. And he felt like that was a noble way to die, to handle a snake in this fashion, and then to re refuse medical attention. So obviously, just from that standpoint alone, some of the content in these verses becomes extremely controversial. And uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But one thing I, I want to do is I want to make sure that we don't isolate Mark's account. We know all four gospel writers deal with the resurrection. It's the, it's the only other thing other than the feeding of the 5,000 that's dealt, in all, dealt with in all four gospels. So we have supplementary uh, accounts or parallel accounts that we'll take a look at. But it's not just there, and as we study the resurrection, I'm going to give you a little bigger view of the resurrection as well, so we can talk about the implications of it. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we come now to your word, and we get a chance to study it together and to look at what it has to say to us today, um, we want to know, Lord, we want to know about the evidence for the resurrection. We know that people say the, the resurrection is the capstone in the arch of Christianity. Without it, the rest of the house crumbles. If Christ be not risen, then we are still dead in our sins. And we want to know, Lord, we want to know what the evidence is. We want to look at the Bible. We want to look at um, even what scholarship says about it. And ultimately, Lord, we want to know that this is a true fact, that we can rest our head on pillows at night and face funerals and memorial services with the confidence that Christ is alive. And because he lives, we will live also. So, Lord, as we look at your word, we always want to pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people. We pray that in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. Some of you have heard the name William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a, probably one of the top apologists of our day. He's not apologizing, by the way. He is giving arguments for the faith from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense like in a court of law. William Lade Craig says, after an appraisal of recent scholarship on the historicity of the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ, Professor William Lane Craig, Craig contends, quoting now, that the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the, and the origin of the Christian faith all point unavoidably to one conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now some of you may say, well, what is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If it is this solid that a mind like William Lane Craig would believe it, what is our evidence? Well, one of the things that we learn from the Gospel of Mark, and I've pointed this out a few times, but I don't want to just brush by this because I think that this is an important thing that we need to always keep in mind. Jesus Christ predicted his own resurrection. And I think it's important that we just take a peek back at a few verses in Mark. So go back to Mark 9 for a moment. Mark 9, look at verse 31. As we are finishing up the Gospel of Mark today, I just want to remind you that Jesus did predict his own resurrection. He said these words, Mark 9, look at verse 31. Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples, telling them, The Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah, is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him, which seemed to be pretty common among the apostles. Mark 10, 33 is the next one. Mark 10, 33 says, Jesus is speaking, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, another reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. That's the Romans there. They will mock him, look at the details, spit upon him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now I can show you many references in the New Testament in other Gospels that say the same thing. So this was said on more than one occasion that Jesus said, I'm going to die in this way. We're going to Jerusalem. The timing was the Father's timing would happen at the Passover. It will, would, will, would fulfill Passover imagery and prophecy. And I'm going to die. He gives the details of his death and he gives the detail of his resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead in the very history in which we find ourselves living, he is a liar. You might as well just dismiss the rest of what he said. If some modern so-called liberal scholars are correct and there's no literal bodily resurrection and it's some sort of metaphor for some deep meaning of the struggle between the Jews and the Romans, I would just say this, put your Bible away and go to the beach. Because if Christ is not alive, then 1 Corinthians 15 says it well, our faith is futile, that means empty, we are still in our sins, and we are of most people to be pitied because we have believed and preached. And by the way, I've preached it, I can't even tell you how many times. I did a memorial service yesterday for a dear family and this congregation, and we stood upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the anchor of our souls, as the hope when, you know, you have to stare, stare death in the face. Look, I'm, I'm not into you know, uh, metaphors, okay? Metaphors have some value in studying literature. But I want to know that Jesus is alive, and because he lives, we will live, amen? So we can dismiss with some of the nonsense that we hear in liberal circles when people are interviewed on television. I want to scream at my television. Like, yeah, anyway. 
Walter Martin is one of my heroes, and Walter Martin went home to be with the Lord some years ago now. But he said these words about the resurrection. He said, The power of the risen Christ can transform our lives by faith through grace alone. The power of the resurrection is the shedding forth of the Holy Spirit into our lives to enable us through gifts and through fruits to witness to a dying world that's lost and on its way to eternal judgment. Close quote. J.N.D. Anderson, writing on the evidence of the resurrection, says, Easter's message is either the supreme fact in history or it is a gigantic hoax. Either the resurrection is infinitely more than a beautiful story or else it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history and to fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. I could tell you about many, many people who have studied the evidence for the resurrection, skeptics, lawyers that were challenged to study the evidence as in a court of law. Even this morning, J. Vernon McGee, in his wonderful style, preaching on KKLA, was interviewing the witnesses. And he called John to the witness stand and Paul, not literally, he was, you know, acting on their behalf. And uh, he began to act like it was a court of law in the congregation. And he called Peter and John and Paul to the witness stand. Saul, who became Paul, is an interesting case because he was a skeptic, an enemy of Christianity. You know, each of these uh, cases, when you begin to call each of the witnesses, and eyewitnesses are extremely important, even in a day and age when we have DNA evidence and we have you know, different ways to test crime scenes, we all know that there's nothing like an eyewitness. There's nothing like a couple of eyewitnesses who verify the facts. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it said that every fact had to be verified by two or three witnesses. In fact, you could not be condemned on the eyewitness testimony of just one person. There had to be two or three. And of course, there are many more than two or three eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they give testimony. And the question is, are they reliable? Did they have, you know, what did they have to gain by giving testimony to the resurrection? As you begin to analyze their lives, you know that uh, the bulk of them died for their faith. They went to the grave. They faced the, the lions in the Colosseum, some of them. They faced the executioner's sword going to their grave saying, He lives, and I will not deny him. And so um, we can see that the validity of um, their accounts is something that's very, very powerful. In the New Testament, before we get into Mark's gospel, I just want to show you just kind of a, uh, this will be a, a couple of quick punches that you can make from other letters, and they're found in three letters in a row, Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. So quickly, I want to just show you kind of some supplementary content, Acts 1, so you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, so I'm going to give you three just in a row. Call these supplementary outside the Gospels. Here's Acts 1, written by Dr. Luke, who investigated the Christian faith carefully. He said, he's talking about Jesus, Acts 1, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had been by the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 2, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. These he also presented, uh, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, Acts 1, 3, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus, the many convincing proofs were his many appearances 
and also showing the physicality of his resurrection body, inviting them to, to touch his wounds, the scars, if you will. And there were many convincing proofs, as Acts 1 t tells us. The very next book is the book of Romans, written by Saul, who became Paul. Just keep going to your right. Romans 1. So you got Acts 1 and Romans 1. Paul says these words. He's introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls it the gospel of God to which he was set apart to be a preacher. Acts, excuse me, Romans 1, 2. Romans 1, 2. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Romans 1, 3 who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you go to the very next book to your right, it's 1 Corinthians 15 is the most exhaustive chapter on resurrection. If you want to study the resurrection, this is the chapter to study. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 are called early creedal tradition in the church even Bart Ehrman who claims to be a non-Christian skeptic of the Bible claims that the tradition in 1 Corinthians 15 3 and 4 dates within one year of the crucifixion and what happened to Jesus these are the words that are recorded this is kind of like early creedal language or uh, transmission of what's called oral tradition which was very important in that day Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, so here you have all these eyewitnesses. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Paul saying, they're here if you want to talk to them. Some have fallen asleep. That's a way of saying some of them have died. As you skip down, uh, go to verse 17. As Paul is talking about the resurrection, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have died or fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. We're not going to see them again. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Here's the implications of the resurrection. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. If you remain in Adam and you're not in Christ, you're going to die. So also in Christ all shall be made alive. If you're in Christ, you will live. These are the things that the resurrection uh, the implications of the resurrection. Go back to Mark's gospel, Mark 16. Um, this is what it means to believe in the resurrection. This is what it means to have a faith that goes well beyond this current life. This is what it means to have hope. Not a hope that is just some fanciful story, not pie in the sky, not fantasy, but fact uh, embedded in our very history. Now, Mark 16 is, are these controversial verses, and they're found in uh, verses 9 through 20. And let me just give you some facts about them really quick. Our oldest Greek manuscripts and others do not have these verses. The most ancient manuscripts only contain uh, to verse 8, Mark 16, 1 through 8. There are other manuscripts that have different endings, so this section is a debated section. 
There are some commentaries that just end at verse 8. So if you picked up a commentary on Mark, some of them just end with uh, a notation that they argue that verse 8 is the proper ending, and that's where it should end. So no commentary even on the verses. There's other commentaries you can pick up, such as John MacArthur's commentary, where he will say that he believes the, the verses are uh, very questionable, but then goes on to give commentary. And then there are others who would hold that these are authentic. The earliest Greek versions and patristic evidence has the Gospel of Mark ending at verse 8. To the witnesses of the two earliest parchment codices, and I'm going to give you, I told you we're going to be a little technical this morning, but we're talking about now full copies of the entire New Testament. Remember that when you go back and you study manuscript evidence of the New Testament, it's incredibly compelling. It, it outdoes any really ancient book of antiquity. And we have something like 20,000 manuscripts that would inc include Greek and Latin manuscripts. Um, but the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek. Koine uh, is a word that means common or the common man's language. We call our fellowship times koinonia. It's the same idea. What we have in common. Koine Greek is the, was the common man's language of the day. And so when we talk about entire manuscripts that have the entire 27 New Testament books, we're talking about these early codices uh, that have the complete um, sections that we're discussing. These two manuscripts, these early manuscripts uh, that don't have them are called Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Sinai um, and then, then there's other uh, manuscripts as well. They are considered by most scholars to be the best manuscripts we have. They date from the early 300s A.D. and are complete manuscripts. These two manuscripts do not contain any verses after verse 8. There are also some early manuscripts, Latin manuscripts, that do not have verses 9 through 20. Some early Syrian and Arminian and Georgian manuscripts that don't have them. The abrupt ending, as it's called by many scholars, ending at verse 8 of Mark, is also witnessed in an old Latin manuscript they call K. Uh, other manuscripts, uh, including the Sinaitic, Syriac, Arminian versions, Adish, Opisa manuscripts, and the Georgian versions, and a number of manuscripts of Ethiopic versions, all provide a wide range of evidence, and I'm quoting uh, much from William Lane Craig, or excuse me, from um, uh, Lane's commentary on Mark, uh, that there's strong evidence that verse 8 is the ending. Origen and Clement, who both are church fathers from the middle and late 3rd century, do not seem to be familiar with these verses. They were from Alexandria, Egypt. The 4th century church father Eusebius, who was also in Alexandria, Alexandria and Jerome, about the same time, he may have been in Rome at this time, said these verses were missing from most of the manuscripts uh, they had, and they, uh, they also said they were not aware of these verses. Eusebius remarked that accurate copies of Mark ended with verse 8, adding that chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 were missing from almost all manuscripts. Jerome echoes, and Jerome wrote the uh, Latin Vulgate. Jerome echoes this saying, saying that almost all Greek codices do not have this concluding portion. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Cyprian, Cyril of Jerusalem show no awareness of the existence of these verses. 
A number of Greek manuscripts which do not contain them have some sort of explanatory note stating that older Greek copies lack them. In other witnesses, the final section is marked off with asterisks or what's called obeli, uh, the conventional signs used when scribes mark off what is a questionable or even spurious addition to the text. Now, don't get nervous. We are able to cross-reference manuscripts and get back to what we know is the original. We have an incredible amount of manuscript evidence. So when we cross-check uh, manuscripts, we're able to see what might have been a scribal gloss. What do you mean, Pastor Michael, a scribal gloss? Well, sometimes what happens is a scribe may put an explanatory note in a text or a manuscript, and somehow, eventually, through time, it crept into the biblical text. So we're able to see that. Sometimes these versions are very rare. There's only one manuscript that has a different ending or something like that. And it's not hard to see the consistency in the manuscripts show that the proper reading is this. We can, we can do that by you know, going back early and looking at you know, the, uh, the stream of witness, if you will. Ending the gospel at verse 8, though, does seem abrupt for some and perhaps even unnatural. The gospel ends with the angel telling the women, if you're in chapter 16, that Jesus had risen, but there is no uh, Christ, risen Christ appearing to them. So some scholars, in light of this, believing that the ending of Mark has been lost, they argue that verses 9 through 20 are not the original, but actually the original is lost. And there are some uh, letters that are referenced in the New Testament, for example, a Corinthian letter that we're aware of that Paul talks about that we don't have. Some of them are lost. Remember, we are relying on copies, early copies. We have a fragment from the Gospel of John that dates to about 115 to 120 A.D. That's extremely early. A lot of scholarship is dating the Gospels earlier and earlier, so there's, there's really no chance for any kind of legend to, to come in there. Yet, they do say that it's, it's a little strange. And maybe there was another conclusion to the gospel and somehow that uh, concluding section was lost. What are the reasons that scholars conclude that verses 9 through 20 are not authentic? Number one, if you're taking notes, the, the vocabulary seems to shift from what scholars say is not characteristic of Mark. They call it Markan vocabulary. So they say the, the section, verses 9 through 20, don't seem to be, doesn't seem to represent the typical way in which Mark writes. There are, one, there are 183 words in these verses in the Greek text, of which 53 are not found elsewhere in Mark and are unique to this section. 21 of those words in the long, what's called the long ending, verses 9 through 20, are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. So the number one evidence, they say, is that it doesn't seem to be the typical way that Mark talks. They say the transition from verses 8 to 9 is grammatically awkward. It is not a smooth transition. The grammar doesn't seem to flow properly. The subject shifts from the women to the implied subject of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in verse 1, and now he reintroduces her more thoroughly in verse 9. Why does Mark feel he has to reintroduce Mary so thoroughly now? Just take a look. Look at verse 9. After he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. They say, well, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in verse 1. Why does he reintroduce her and now feel like he has to say that she was a woman who Jesus cast seven demons out of? Now, Luke tells us that was the case. 
Mary Magdalene was delivered from demonic possession, but they say this seems still a bit unnatural and doesn't flow well. Um, possible objections to this line of reasoning. Here's the reverse argument. In the rest of Mark, there are 102 words which are unique, i.e., they're not used anywhere else in Mark. They only appeared one time in Mark. So if there are another 53 in the long ending, some scholars say that's not terribly earth-shattering. Sometimes when a writer's writing something, they use unique words in a section because the content may be different from the rest of what they're writing about. So this is not always what we would say is determinative. This doesn't just make the case that just because there are some unique words, it doesn't mean the same guy wrote it. For example, some scholars said that Paul didn't write 1 Timothy and Titus because he seems to write differently. But he was older then, and he was writing on some different subjects. So just because there's some unique words, you know, if you wrote 10 letters to different people on different subjects, you would probably use some unique words. We would, we'd be able to analyze your writing and see the way that you typically wrote and words that you would use quite often. But you, you, you might use some unique words if you were writing on a certain subject that you didn't write on in the other nine letters that we studied. Everybody with me? So while this gets a little technical, this is not always an open and shut case. One uh, pastor I was listening to or teacher says, in Luke, the first 12 verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, there are 20 unique words that are not found elsewhere in the New Testament. In Luke's gospel, there are 312 words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Matthew has 137 unique words in his gospel, not found anywhere else in the New Testament, and John has 114. So, you know, this can't be just the, the single weight by which we say these are not authentic version, or verses. The positive evidence that this may be authentic, however, there is a case to be made. These verses are found in what's called the Syriac Peshitta version. It's the Greek translated into Aramaic or Syriac, translated somewhere between the 2nd and the late 4th century. Now remember that these early Greek codices or complete manuscripts that we have date from the early 300s AD. But we have some other early witnesses that are outside of Alexandria, Egypt, where a lot of these church fathers I mentioned to you say they don't have these verses. But in other locations, the verses seem to be common or they seem to be there. It could be that... Uh, these uh, versions, Syriac, Peshitta, and uh, what I just mentioned to you, could be older than the earliest Greek translations we have. They are also included in the old, 9 to, through 20, are included in some of the old Latin versions before Jerome wrote the Vulgate. Some of these versions date back between A.D. 150 to A.D. 170, earlier than the earliest Greek manuscripts that don't have them. So does the Gothic translation dated from about A.D. 350. They also include the long ending, and they are about as old or older than the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have. Church fathers also quote from verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16. Irenaeus quotes from them in A.D. 170. There's a possible echo of chapter 16, verse 20, quoted by Justin in his Apology. Justin's disciple, Tatian, who wrote the first harmony of the Gospels, first one ever written called the Diatessaron, quoted from the long ending, verses 9 through 20, in about A.D. 170. This is about 150 years before the early Greek manuscripts that we appeal to that don't have the verses. The older, uh, thus, the older manuscripts do contain the longer ending, and William Lane argues that the longer ending was in circulation by the middle of the 2nd century, that's about 150 A.D., 
While its composition should be assigned to the first half of the second century, early 100s, Tertullian quotes from the long ending. He quotes Mark 16, 9 and 215 AD, and Hippolytus quotes it tw- from it twice. He quotes from Mark 16, 18 and 19 in 235 AD. All right, everybody take a breath. So you can see that this is why these verses are debated. There are actually two other endings attested in a few manuscripts. There is one ending that is found in one manuscript. They call it the shorter ending, and it reads this way. It omits, they said nothing to anyone in verse 8, and it reads like this. And they went out and fled from the tomb from trembling and astonishment. Trembling and astonishment had gripped them. Conveying that they fled because they were afraid is the idea. But, quoting now, they reported briefly to Peter, this is one version that we've discovered, uh, to Peter and those with him that uh, all they had been told, and after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now, when writers look at that, they say, hmm... That may have been a well-meaning scribe trying to finish it out based upon other evidences that we have, but it doesn't necessarily ring true with the way the Bible is typically written. The so-called shorter ending would convey that the copy of Mark that lay before this particular author ended with chapter 16, verse 8, that no other ending was known. And in order to round out this ending, this was placed there to give explanation. Perhaps it was a scribal note that at some point crept into the text. Remember, when you're looking at early manuscripts, they did not have chapter and verse breaks until about 1,500 years later. So you don't have, you know, chapter 1, verse 22. So that's why when something is there, even if it was a scribal note, it could be that someone took it as the actual authentic text. Note, often variant readings are identified this way so that it becomes clear by cross-comparing thousands of manuscripts what might be a a scribal gloss or what's called a variant reading. And we can get back to the original. There is one ancient manuscript, and we'll be done with the technical part in just a minute. There is one ancient manuscript that has uh, another ending, what they call a medium-length ending, shorter than the longer ending, but longer than the shorter ending. (laughs) And all God's people said, I need coffee. (laughs) Afterward, here's the medium-length ending. Afterward, when the eleven reclined at meal, Jesus appeared to them and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after his resurrection. And they made excuse, saying, quote, This age of iniquity and unbelief is under Satan, who through unclean spirits does not permit the true power of God to be apprehended, therefore, Reveal your righteousness now. The, the Greek text of this fragment was supplied in a more complete form in the 5th century. And then they discovered an, a manuscript in 1906 in Egypt, which uh, had a, a version of it as well. And so this is how Jesus responds to this particular version, only in one manuscript. And the Messiah said to them that the limit of the year of the authority of Satan has been fulfilled, but the other terrible things are drawing near. And on behalf of those who have sinned, I was delivered to death in order that they might turn to the truth and sin no more, in order that they might inherit the spiritual and incorruptible glory which is in heaven, which consists in righteousness, close quote. 
And authors and scholars that look at that say, that's not the typical way that Mark writes. That's not the typical way that the apostles and Jesus spoke to one another. I don't think so. It's only in one manuscript. So there you go. So you say, Pastor Michael, okay. What do you believe about this? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. When you look at the case against and for, it's, it's a little bit tough. And some of the content that I see in these verses is questionable. I will say this without revealing to you my answer, because <laughs> I'm still wrestling with it. I'll say this. Take these verses in light of the other gospel accounts and make sure that you don't build doctrine on a controversial section. But I will say this to you. When you look at verses 9 through 20, which we will briefly in the next few moments, you're going to see that most of the content that's there is in the other gospels, with a few exceptions. So let's take a look and see what we've got. Now after Mark 16, 9, he had risen, uh, uh, risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, Luke tells us that this was the case. Mary Magdalene is all over the other gospel accounts as the first witness of the resurrection. So this is nothing surprising and nothing new. If you want, just to write this down, and for the sake of time, I can't go to all these texts, but just write down John 20, look at verses 10 through 21, and you'll see uh, confirmation that Mary Magdalene was the first one. Remember, she's weeping at the tomb, and she thinks it's the gardener, and she says, sir, just tell me where you've laid him. And he says, why are you weeping? And then all of a sudden, he says, Miriam to her. And she says, Rabboni, remember? And so she wants to cling on to him. And that's all recorded in this section in John 20, verses 10 through 21. And she's instructed to go and tell uh, her brethren uh, about what she has seen. And she goes back and reports uh, what she's testified to. She says, I've seen the Lord, and they, they don't believe her testimony, they don't believe the women, but they go off running to the tomb, and I think most of us know the rest of the story. Story. She went and reported to those, verse 10, Mark 16, who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. Now that's a little bit of a new insight from Mark 16. She goes and reports to them while they're mourning and weeping. I don't think it would be surprising for us to find that they were mourning and weeping in these three days. They had certainly gone through the hardest time of their lives. So that's what Mark's gospel tells us. She goes in, she reports to them, verse 10. They're crying, weeping. You can imagine Peter, you know, I'm sure that he had, uh, he didn't just stop crying after that night when he went out and wept bitterly. I'm sure that he had probably crying fits. You know, when people are in grief and mourning, sometimes all of a sudden it just hits you and you cry. So I don't find anything surprising here. And when they heard that he was alive, verse 11, and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Well, that's nothing new. Uh, Luke 24 says these words. Just write down 9 through 12. Uh, it says, Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and also other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. Luke 24, 11 and says, And these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. They would not believe. Now they went off running to the tomb. Peter and John did. And John went in and believed. And Peter looked around. So this is something that is confirmed by the other gospel writers. And they, they, at first they refused to believe. Now after that, verse 12, Mark 16, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. These are the two men on the road to Emmaus. 
And we know this story, it's familiar to a lot of us. It's recorded in Luke 24. You can look at verses 13 through 35. They're walking away. It's about a two-hour walk. It's about seven miles from the events that happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes walking up, remember? And they didn't recognize him. And they're talking, and he says, what are you guys talking about? Oh, we're talking about what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Where have you been, stranger? Right? And what things, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, they say, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth and, you know, all that happened to him. And finally, he says these words in Luke 24. He says, oh, foolish men, how foolish you are, NIV, how dull you are, NEB, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer uh, these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory, says Jesus? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Remember that? What a Bible study. We all want to be there, right? Oh, what did he go back to? What did he expound on? And so he gave them this Bible study as they went along. And of course, oops, they asked him to stay and uh, he agreed. They said, stay with us. And it came about that when he, they rec- he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began to give it to them. And that would have pro- brought back some, a lot of memories for them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And they said, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate the experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So again, Luke's gospel does tell us that this did happen and that they encountered these, uh, these two encountered the risen Christ and they go back and give testimony. Now, let's look at Mark 16, verse 13. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them. Now, that, that seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, it's, there's already a mention of an appearance to Peter. How could they not believe at this point? But in Matthew 28, even when they're in Galilee and Jesus appears, it says these words. Tell you what, take a peek. Just go back to Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 28, look at verse 16. This is in the setting of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but... Matthew 28, 17 says what? But some were what? Wait, what? (laughs) He's appeared over a period of 40 days. He's testifying to the kingdom of God. He's invited you guys to touch his wounds, to see the wound prints in his side. He goes up to the mountain he's designated. He's there before you and some say, I don't know. Are you kidding me? You might say, but look, this is the very humanness of the early followers of Christ. There was a lot of skeptics in the room, even when he was there before them. Are you a skeptic? How many of you want to admit it? A little skeptical, a lot skeptical. It's okay, I'm a bit skeptical too. 
I like evidence. I like to look at things and see how it weighs out. Well, even with Jesus in front of them, some were doubting, so uh, it may not be all of them. Of course, Peter had seen the risen Christ. Go back to Mark 16, so maybe it was some of them. We do know about doubting Thomas, that we call him, but of course then he believed when Jesus invited him to touch the wounds. So let's pick it up in verse 14. Mark 16, 14 says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And, Mark 16, 14, he reproached or rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, I don't think that this is troubling either. I mean, the two men on the road to Emmaus are rebuked for their unbelief. And so Jesus comes, they're reclining at the table. Uh, That's the position of eating. And he finds them and he rebukes them for their unbelief. Now, turn to Luke to your right, Luke 24, Luke 24. Here's what Luke records as one of the appearances of Christ to the apostles. Luke 24, look at verse 36. This is still within the story of the road to Emmaus experience. 24, 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. How many of you seen, uh, have seen the movie Risen? Raise up your hand. Did you see that movie? So you remember the Roman character? He's the Roman, Roman, I think he's the centurion in the story. Do you remember when he walks into the room and he sees Jesus there and he had watched Jesus die on the cross? And he's, he finds himself, he's up against the wall and he sees Jesus and he knew his face and he sees the nail prints in his hands and he, he's up against the wall and he's totally skeptical, hardened soldier. And when he sees him, he just slides down the wall. And Jesus kind of just smiles at him. It's a very poignant moment in the film. And, you know, can you imagine what these guys must have felt like when they saw him? And they saw him on multiple occasions. This is what's called by scholars multiple attestation. It it attested uh, by multiple witnesses on multiple occasions. So while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But when they (laughs) were startled and frightened, and it seems like he just showed up. He disappeared, then he showed up. And thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do what? Doubts arise in your hearts. Why don't you believe? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Luke 24, 39. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now there are some modern movements, some cults, that say that there was no physical resurrection. They say When Jesus appeared, he was a spirit. He didn't leave footprints. He was some sort of ghost or phantom, but he wasn't physical. I'm sorry, but read your Bible again. Because he says, a spirit, verse 39, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He was alive, he was physical, and his resurrection body is a prototype of yours. And I have some really good news for all of us. As we continue to read in the Gospel of Luke, I want you to see what happens next. So he invites them to touch him. And while they still not could, uh, 41, they could not believe it for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Now he's in the resurrection body. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And all kinds of people said, yes! 
we get to eat in the resurrection. Look. I don't know what excites you, okay? But for me, this is a piece of evidence that is exhilarating. Because I've heard people tell stories that you could eat pizza, and I'm not talking about the diet portions, the fake cheese and stuff. No, 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 no. I'm talking about real food. I'm talking about not 31 flavors, baby. But how about 3,030? I don't know. He ate. This is not some visionary experience. This is not some hallucination, as some have tried to argue. Maybe they hallucinated. No, Jesus is physical, tangible. This is historical reality. Jesus was really there. It was his real body that really had come out of the tomb. Amen? And he ate it before them, and they watched him. And they had to be marveling. Wow. Wow. They'd seen him eat before, but now he's in the resurrection, right? All right, back to Mark, and we'll finish it. 16. By the way, we are going to prepare our hearts for communion at the end of this message, so we have to move quickly. And he said to them, Mark 16, 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In Luke, he says, Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm sending you out. In Matthew 28, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look, this is another form of the Great Commission, very much attested in the Gospels. He says, And he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Okay, controversy number one. (laughs) He who, verse 16, has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. The uh, churches, uh, one of the churches of Christ that believes that baptism is necessary for salvation has this as one of their evidence verses. They say, see, the Bible teaches you must be baptized to be saved. But notice the second part, part B of 16. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. The second half does not say he who is not baptized is condemned, but simply says he who has been who disbelieved shall be condemned. So I'll say this. We all know, we've studied the book of Romans recently, that justification is by faith through grace. It is not that baptism saves you. But I'll say this to you. In the book of Acts, we see people hear the truth and get baptized very quickly. And if you have not been baptized, I have a question for you, and that is why. In the early church, baptism was so closely associated to the receiving of Christ as Lord and Savior, it happened almost immediately in many cases, that it became the marker or the witness that you were part of the believing community. But I will say this on the reverse end, that the Bible does not teach that baptism saves you, it teaches that Christ saves you. Baptism is the first act of obedience. You should be baptized. Jesus commanded that we baptize people. However, this is what makes these verses controversial. And then it gets a little bit more controversial. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. Now, I'm just going to say to you, that's not surprising. The disciples did that in the Gospels. In Acts 16, 18, Paul cast out a demon out of a servant girl. 
They will speak with new tongues. Well, that's all over the book of Acts. Acts 2.4 on the day of Pentecost, verse 11. Acts 10.46 in the house of Cornelius. And Acts 19.6, I think it's in Ephesus with some disciples. They all speak with new tongues or speak in tongues. That's seen in the book of Acts. And they will pick up serpents. Hmm. Now, there's only one case I know of in the book of Acts. Paul's on the island of Malta. The ship has uh, wrecked. He's picking up sticks to make a fire. The, there was extraordinary kindness shown by the locals there, which was co- quite unusual. If you shipwrecked on an island, they would often kill you and take your stuff. That was the mercy of God. Paul's picking up sticks and a viper attached onto his, his hand. And he shook off the viper into the fire. And the locals were watching him, waiting for him to swell up and die. And they, they said to one another, Oh, this is a bad man. Even though he survived the shipwreck, the gods have not allowed him to live, and a snake has now bitten him, and let's just watch him swell up and die. But they watched Paul for a while, and nothing happened to him. And then they said, he must be a god! Talk about fickleness, right? You go from, he's a horrible dude, to he's a god. (laughs) That's the only case I know of that I can think of in the New Testament. But as I mentioned, there are some groups that have taken this that they should be snake handling in their actual services. And the snake handling practices of a Pentecostal pastor in Kentucky killed him as he was bitten by a rattlesnake during a weekend service. Um, I have a note here that it's estimated that 125 churches in the United States use poisonous snakes during services today, with many of them clustered in the south. They do what's called snake handling. They do this based solely upon this verse in Mark 16, which, you know, is a way, even if this verse is authentic, it could point to the Apostle Paul on a mission where God preserves his life. But I don't think it makes the case that someone should test the Lord. Everybody with me? So, you might be on a mission somewhere, and look, at the end of... um, in the middle of verse 18, it says they will, they, if they drink anything, any deadly poison, or New King James says anything deadly. One, one person I was listening to on this said, this could speak of water in regions where they had to drink the water and it could hurt them. So it may not speak of poison, but it could speak of uh, polluted water or unsanitary water. If you've heard stories of people who have gone to Mexico and drank the water, don't drink the water, man, <laughs> right? They call that Montezuma's, right? So um, the locals may not be troubled by the water, but you might. So it may speak of protection as they went on their mission trip in the book of Acts and they had to drink the water. We have stories of people today in third world countries, they have to drink dirty, unsanitized water. And sometimes it hurts them. Well, maybe this is a promise that they will be protected, but this is not a promise to test the Lord. You don't do that. You don't go up to the platform and chunk. Don't and then they refuse medical attention. It may be that the Lord's saying, I'll protect you as long as I want you on the planet as you're doing mission, but don't test the Lord. So when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. This, uh, of course, is another version of the ascension we see in the other gospels. And he sat down at the right hand of God. That's all over. 
the Bible. It's from Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And finally, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by, by the signs that followed them. Certainly, uh, that was the case. He confirmed his word all over the place in the book of Acts. He confirmed the word by the signs that followed them. And then you have an alternate ending again in brackets if you have the New American Standard at the end. And so there's the evidence. They went out and they began to preach. And they preached the gospel, the everlasting gospel, that Jesus Christ is alive. And he is. And he still lives. And he's still saving people. And so my encouragement to you is trust in him and him alone for your salvation. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Would you bow with me, Lord, as we have tackled this uh, section? Thank you for the grace you give us. And for some people who are sitting here this Sunday morning, they've gone through the entire Gospel of Mark with us, and it's been an awesome, awesome experience for us as a church. Thank you for your word. And for some that are sitting here, they've been through entire books of the Bible with us for decades, Lord. And I am so grateful for this church, so grateful for the people of God. And I just pray that as we come to your table now, we draw close to you, um, remembering what you did, your cross and your resurrection, Lord. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes as we take of communion. We're so grateful that you live and we can remember what you've done for us personally, Lord. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Christ, just cry out to him today. Just say, Lord, save me. You are God, I believe it. I believe your death on the cross pays for my sins. Pray it if it's you. I believe in your resurrection. I believe it's true. I believe I'm going to live because you live. And I trust in you. I repent of my sin and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Change me from the inside out. If you're a prodigal, you've been running from God, draw near to him. He'll receive you with open arms. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity you give us so many times to get right with you and get close to you. May you do miracles. As we take of the Lord's Supper, may you do miracles in our soul, miracles in our lives, miracles in our emotional health, and most of all, do miracles in our spiritual lives, Lord. Touch bodies that need a touch of healing, Lord. And strengthen this church to be your witnesses and to preach the gospel to all creation. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, when the elements come around, would you hold them? If you're a believer, we invite you to take them. Hold them and we'll take them together.